Good. Well, let's just turn to Romans chapter 3. We've got communion coming afterwards, so I think this will be appropriate for us to think about. Romans chapter 3, and again, let's just pray for a moment. Dear Father, we cannot bless ourselves. The preacher can't bless these dear souls, O Lord. Only you can do it. We thank you again for your inerrant word that we can trust, that is all-sufficient. And we thank you for your spirit who takes your word and ministers it to our hearts. Oh, Lord, please be about such work even here tonight. Father, please honour your word. Honour your son. Honour the gospel. Bless and encourage the hearts of your dear people. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you a couple of questions. The first is, what does God think of you right now? As the Father turns, as it were, his attention from what's going on in the rest of the universe and looks at you, what does he think? What is the expression on his face? The second question is this. Can you do anything to change his opinion of you? Now, these are two very helpful diagnostic questions, and they expose our heart theology. Now, we know things, don't we, in our heads, but it's where we are in our hearts that really matters. Those questions... The truth is that unless you really believe that Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, has done enough for you, all that needs doing to make you totally acceptable with God, it's going to be difficult to answer those questions in an honest way. You are going to be scrabbling around thinking, did I do my quiet time this morning? Um, have I given anything to charity this week? Uh, not really, oh, um, and you'll be scrabbling around, or I, I, have I done something I shouldn't have done? Have I looked at something I should and I'm not sure what God thinks of me. That's how you'll be, but that's not the gospel. The good news is that as we trust ourselves into the hands of Jesus, he has done everything to make us totally acceptable children of God forever. What does God think of me right now? He thinks he, she, is my beloved child. And that's true whether you've had a good week or whether you've messed up and have had to say sorry to the Lord. He, she is my beloved child. Some of you perhaps watch, I have to say, Anne and I are pretty addicted to the um, TV program Pointless. Right? Perhaps some of you watch that. And, you know, it's the most obscure answer wins, you know. And sometimes the situation occurs, there are, there are a couple, you know, there's always a couple that's answering the questions. And the situation sometimes occurs when the first player in the team has done so well 
that when it comes to the second player's question, Alexander Armstrong says, the good news is you're through to the next round no matter what. Even if you get it wrong and score 100 points, you're through. And that's a little picture. The real good news is that Jesus has done so well for us that we're not just through to the next round. (laughs) We're through to heaven. We are accepted by God forever, even though we still mess up as sinners. And realizing that ought to make us very, very confident and assured, stable people. God is my loving Father forever, and I'm his beloved child. That will always be his opinion of me as I've come to faith in Christ. But, having said that, often looking at Christians it sometimes appears that we don't have that kind of relationship with God. People look at us and they think the God we serve seems to always be distant and always to have a frown on his face because these Christians always seem to be uncertain and fearful and worried and not really full of joy. Many Christians are like that. They lack assurance And they lack um, assurance more often that stems from not understanding, not really grasping, not just up here, but deep down in the heart, what Martin Luther calls passive righteousness. So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. It's very, very much, in many ways, the heart of the gospel. So let's just think, first of all, about two kinds of righteousness, which we find actually in this passage. So can we have the second slide, please, James? Two kinds of righteousness. Martin Luther, in his pra- he wrote a great, a great, a great um, commentary on the book of Galatians. And in his preface to that book, he speaks of our active and passive righteousness. Now... That's not to be confused with the active and passive obedience of Christ. All right? Active, what he did for us, and passive, what he suffered for us. We're not really talking about that tonight. That's not what's in, in, in the real focus. <coughs> Those are great things, but they're not in view. We're talking about two kinds of righteousness that belong to us. Active righteousness that you create and passive righteousness that you just receive. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, doing stuff. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Verse 21, but now... A righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, testifies. In verse 20, we have active righteousness, us seeking to observe the Ten Commandments, doing the right thing. 
And because of our sin, we can never be good enough. No one will be declared righteous on that basis of active righteousness. But, verse 21, we're told of a different kind of righteousness. A different kind of righteousness. A passive righteousness. Now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It comes from God. It's apart from, separate from the law. But all the Old Testament foretold it in things like Adam and Eve being clothed by God, uh, uh, by, Gen- uh, by, by Abraham being accepted as righteous. Book of Zechariah, perhaps the prophet, where we have the high priest Joshua with dirty clothes, but those t- clothes are taken off and he's reclothed in resplendent garments. All those kinds of things point forward to what Paul is talking about here. And it comes through faith, verse 22, in Jesus Christ. We don't create it. We are passive. But it comes to us. It's given to us. Listen to one way of thinking of the gospel. This is Isaiah 45, verse 8. You heavens above, rain down righteousness. Let the cloud shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness grow with it. I, the Lord, have created it. What does the land do to receive the rain? Nothing. It just comes, doesn't it? It's passive. It simply receives it. And from the cross, Jesus... Righteousness rains down on everyone who will receive it. It rains down. We either receive it or we reject it. But it comes. That question, what does God think of you right now, exposes whether or not we've really got that, whether we've really got hold of it, grasp it, whether you and I are really trusting Jesus or something else, especially our good deeds. Don't. Don't trust anything else. Just Jesus and this righteousness. Grasp the gospel. Get hold of it. Let it affect you, not just in the head, but at heart level. Drink it in like that field that drinks in the rain, and lets it percolate right down into the subsoil. And beware, I know perhaps some of you will say, oh, I know all this, I know all this. But do you know all this? Do you know it? Yes. But some of us only know it at a head level, not a heart level. We are a kind of academic evangelical. Something must be known and felt deep down. 
And we must allow this to affect us at that level. Let me press this. Jesus did two things for us. First, he gives us forgiveness. At the cross, my guilty record was transferred onto Jesus' shoulders. He saw the stinking, foul heap of our sin and said, I'll take responsibility for that. And took it on his shoulders and paid for it by his own death on the cross. We are forgiven. God can't ask our sins to be paid for again because Jesus has done it. Our infinitely huge, unpayable debt cancelled. But is that all he did for me? If he just cancelled my debt, that, as it were, just puts me back to zero (laughs) in the account books of righteousness. No, he did that, but that wasn't the only thing he did. Jesus did a second thing. I had a record of guilt, of sin. But Jesus had a record too. A record of a life rightly, beautifully lived, perfect, pleasing to God in every way. Remember what happened when Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptised, the voice from heaven This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's Jesus' record, isn't it? And the second thing that Jesus did is that that perfect record of his, his righteousness is transferred from his account into your account and my account as we trust in Christ. Before God, I want to be forgiven, but I don't just want to be forgiven, wonderful as that is. I want to be right with God. That God can look at us and say, well pleased. And because of Jesus' righteousness given freely to us by faith, I'm not just a zero. I'm in infinite credit in the account books of righteousness. Does God really do that? Yes. Look at verse 23. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Justified means counted righteous, declared righteous. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and for those very people, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Declared righteous. And again, that's a real-life example, just down in chapter 4 there, in verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't a great bloke. He started off as an idolater. He was all sorts of trouble, even after God had met with him. You remember uh, two, two wives kind of situation, all kinds of problems. And yet it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God really does this. 
Or again, see these two exchanges spelt out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I'll read it to you. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. That's the exchange of our sin onto Jesus. So that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. We are in Christ. His righteousness is therefore ours. The righteousness of God. That's given to us. There's that passive righteousness. And as I say, it's this passive righteousness that rescues Christianity from being simply a religion. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. And we mustn't drift back into, oh, I've got, you know, I'm no good unless I've done this and that. If we fail, we must repent. We must say sorry to God. But that, that is overridden now, if you're a Christian, by this passive righteousness that's always yours. We mustn't fall back into that. And we are prone to do that. You see, when a preacher preaches on godliness, that's great. But if... It's not in the context of a righteousness that's already ours and we cannot lose. It tends to take people back into active righteousness. I've got to do this to be accepted. That happens with so many Christians. They almost forget the gospel. And that isn't the pattern of the New Testament. The pattern of the New Testament is it does speak about godliness, but always after emphasizing what God has done for us. So the whole book of Romans, Romans 1 to 11, this is what God has done. Now, in view of God's mercy, start living like this. Start living the way you're meant to be. But it's not to do with meriting anything. It's simply living out who you are now. So don't get dragged back into that. And I have to say, it gets worse than that. Sometimes you come across some churches which are more like cults. They say they are evangelical and believe in God's grace in Christ, but actually they make all sorts of other extra demands on people and extra rules. How much have you given to the church this month? How many people have you evangelized this week? That's not enough. Have you attended all the meetings? And they're burdening people. And if you haven't given enough, you're frowned upon. Indeed, if you haven't obeyed the elders, that's looked upon as a sin, even though it's just their opinion. And the danger that they threaten you with the danger of losing your salvation because you haven't done what we've demanded. I've come across people like this. I was counselling a man like this a month or so ago. At his wit's end, thinking he was going to hell because he hadn't obeyed a certain church. Now, can you see that this passive righteousness rescues us from all that? It's all that's all nonsense. Because Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation. We don't fall back into a kind of an evangelical 
legalism. So that's, I think that's probably the, what, was, what was particularly on my mind when I wanted to bring this message to you. Let's make a, let's, let's think about what does this mean for us. Let's think of a few more things about what this means for us. If we really get hold of this, how will it affect us? If we really begin not just to have this on our mental library shelf, yes, I know this, but actually begin to feel it and to live it out, to rest our hearts on it every day, found all our hopes on it, what will happen? Let me suggest a few things. First of all, we will have a new joy. We will have a new joy. I'm going to read a little bit here from Philippians chapter 3. Paul's writing, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. Notice he's writing the gospel again because we keep forgetting it. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, the legalists, you see, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, circumcision, trying to bring you back under the law. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have many reasons for doing that. Paul speaks of joy, verse 1. What's the source of the joy? Well, it's not relying on the flesh, our activity, seeking to create our own righteousness. That will only lead to discouragement and even worse, to self-deception and pride. Where's the joy coming from, Paul? Well, it's down there in Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ, here it is, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, active righteousness, but that which, come, or that which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That's where the joy comes from. Realizing you're justified, you're saved once and for all. Second, if we really get hold of this, it will bring a new honesty to us and to the church. People have stopped coming to church, haven't they? And if you ask them why, what do you usually hear from them? Well, the church is full of hypocrites. And there's often a grain of truth in that. Why does the church have such a problem with honesty? It's because we don't live in the light of this passive righteousness. You see, if I must rely on what I can do this week to make myself approved to God and to others, I cannot look at my sin. I I don't want to look at it. I have a stake in not seeing it. It's not to my benefit, to be honest. It's too threatening. That's how the Pharisees, legalists, became blind Pharisees. But living on the righteousness of Christ credited to my account frees me to be honest. 
about my struggles and sins, and yet nevertheless not be crushed by them, because I have this passive righteousness. I can hate my sin without having a terrible down on myself, because God has justified me. Honesty is just too hard and frightening for legalists. That's when the church becomes hypocritical. No, there's a new honesty with God and with one another, with ourselves, when we grasp this. I'm saved. I'm justified. Push this a bit further. I'm calling this a new gospel. Now, it's not really a new gospel. Please don't get me wrong. But the gospel, once we grasp this, comes over in a new way when we try to communicate it. You see, if your heart theology is about relying for your present standing with God on the good stuff you do, not only will you not be so honest, but you'll give non-Christians the impression that the gospel is, I found forgiveness, Jesus sorted out my life, And if you come to Jesus, he can sort you out too. In other words, I'm better than you because I'm sorted. That's not quite right, is it? That's not quite right. Yes, praise the Lord, Jesus has sorted me. He's given me this passive righteousness. But I wouldn't say my life is now I'm a better person than other people. Doesn't sound quite right, does it? No, Jesus loves sinners. And hallelujah, I've found that I'm a sinner and he loves me. And he can love you too. And I'm still struggling. But nevertheless, there's salvation, there's hope for us. You come too. You come to Christ too. I'm not better than you. I'm on the same level as you. I'm a sinner. But hallelujah, there is hope for sinners. In Jesus Christ. So there's a kind of, as it were, a new gospel. It's not quite like that, but you understand what I'm saying. And then fourthly, there's a new dignity, of course. We were hearing this morning about the fact that we have many troubles, that we're caused to feel a poverty of spirit, and we mourn over our sins, but we look forward to the coming kingdom of God. And Our righteousness, this passive righteousness, is part and parcel of that kingdom. And that passive righteousness means that we will be right with God forever, indwelt by God's spirit, God's child. Once we take hold of that, I don't go in and out of becoming God's child, being God's child, but I'm there. And I have, not because I'm better than anybody else, but only by God's grace. A new dignity. I'm a, I know who I am. A child of God. And also, because time's gone, a new resilience. When we rely, know this on this passive righteousness, when we know this, grasp it, then we know God is for us, come what may. And we all have tough times in life, really tough. We fall over the cliff. If we are not sure God is for us always, the cliff is 300 feet 
drop when we're smashed. But if we know that we are always God's beloved child, counted righteous with him, we still go over the cliff, but it's only 20 feet. It's only 20 feet. It still hurts, but it's not, it's not what it was. And so there's a new resilience about us. We can get up. Okay, I'm, come, I'm, I'm getting on. Because we're secure in Christ because of what he's done for us. So let me say, passive righteousness is the great matter of our salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean we shouldn't actively seek to be righteous. We need it for living in society, being good prison, good citizens, not going to prison. We need it in the family so that things are the best they can be. We need it in the church. We need it at work to do our best, to, to, you know, to do the right thing. Of course we should seek to do that. But that's no good before God because it's never good enough. It's always shot through with pride and sin of some sort. We need that passive righteousness. Now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes not through our deserving, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all, don't sit there tonight and think I'm the exception, to all who believe. For you, Christian, Christ is not an accuser or a cruel exactor but a meek and merciful saviour who has saved you and given you a perfect righteousness forever. Amen.